Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can get us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and via Skynet Satellite. Mm, yeah, this uh, comic this week was picked by Ryan Douglas of the Columbus Connor Comics Corner podcast. He also does Talking Legion and contributes to WeirdScienceDCComics.com. Best bet is to check out ColumbusComicsCorner.Podbean.com for more information about what he's up to. And what he wanted us to read is RoboCop versus the Terminator, number one of four. Published by Dark Horse on May 1st, 1992. Written by Frank Miller. Drawn by Walter Simonson. He did the cover as well. Colors by Rochelle Manashi. Lettering by John Workman. Edited by Randy Stradley. The cover price was two fifty US. $3 Canada. Which actually is a pretty good exchange rate. Yeah, not right? bad at all. Today, it's a lot crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like two fifty US. You know, five fifty Canada. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was uh, wondering if you want to put Walter or Walter Simonson, as I know he prefers Walter. He he was uh, credited as Walter uh, in the comics, so I went that mm-hmm. way. But I just uh, later on we do I do kind of we're gonna vast out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in my mind, he's Walt. And I, and I had Always. to say, I wanted to thank Ryan for giving us this comic with two very unaccomplished creators that had very short bios. You know, nothing really to speak of for Frank Miller and Walt Simonson. Not so thanks very much for that. Uh, a couple of flashes in the pan. Yeah, really. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna start our coverage with uh, this little-known writer uh, Frank Miller. He was born January 27, 1957, in Olney, Maryland. Uh, he was raised in Montpelier, Vermont. He was the fifth of seven children to uh, to, to a, a mother who was a nurse and a father who was a carpenter uh, and electrician. He had uh, hey, just like me, he had an Irish Catholic upbringing. <laughs> Um, and a letter written by Frank to Marvel was published in The Cat Number 3. This was April of 1973. He uh, came to New York City to show Neil Adams his portfolio, and Neil recommended him to Gold Key. Uh, his first published work was for the story uh, for a story in Gold Key's Twilight Zone comic. It was issue number 84, June 1978. Uh, his first credit, credited work was in Weird War, Tur- the, the Weird War Turtles, number 64, uh, cover dated June 1978. The story was called Deliver Me from D-Day and it had a script by Wyatt Gwyden. Gwyden? Gwyden? That sounds okay. Gwyden. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Jim Shooter remembers Frank petitioning DC after he'd gotten, uh, quote, a small job from Western Publishing, I think. Thus emboldened, he went to DC and after getting savaged by Joe Orlando, got in to see art director Vinnie Coletta, who recognized talent and arranged for him to get a one-page war comic job. Uh, Miller did know one-page stories for DC at this time. Likely Shooter is referring to a two-page story that Frank had penciled for Weird War Tales number 68. Uh, this is October 1978. Story was called The Day After Doomsday, written by Roger McKenzie. Uh, he also drew a six-page story by uh, Paul Kupperberg titled The Greatest Story Never Told in that very same issue. Uh, Frank drew a five-page story called The, Ti- the Edge of History, Written by Elliot S. Magan <laughs> in Unknown Soldier number 219. This is a cover dated September of 1978. Yeah, so he did his little DC Comics tour of duty and then. Uh, little stint. His first work for Marvel Comics was penciling the 17 page story The Master Assassin of Mars, Part 3, in John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 18, November 1978, cover date, written by Chris Claremont. From here, Frank Miller would be a regular cover and fill in artist for Marvel. 
Uh, he drew Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 27 to 28, February to March, 1979, written by Bill Mantlo, and this included Daredevil as a guest star. Daredevil's solo title wasn't selling very well at this time, but Frank thought the character had great potential as a blind character in a purely visual medium, which is comics. Mm-hmm. Miller peti- petitioned his mentor and guardian angel, Mary Jo Duffy, for a shot at Daredevil, and she in turn put a bug in the ear of editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. Frank got the job, and Frank remembers, when I first showed up in New York, I showed up with a bunch of comics, a bunch of samples of guys in trench coats and old cars and such. And comics editors said, where are the guys in tights? I had to learn how to do it. But soon as the title came along, when Daredevil artist Gene Cullen left Daredevil, I realized it was my secret in to do crime comics with a superhero in them. And so I lobbied for the title and got it. And he had what we would call a very street-level Daredevil run. Uh, Frank debuted on Daredevil number 158, May 1979, the end of a story by Roger McKenzie and inked by Klaus Janssen. However, sales on Daredevil did not improve. No. Uh, Marvel's management continued to discuss cancellation of the title, and uh, Miller himself almost quit the series because he didn't really dig uh, McKenzie's scripts. Yeah. Uh, Denny O'Neill would come in as editor of the series, and he recognized Miller's talent in a uh, backup that he had written. And so O'Neill fired McKenzie and put Frank in the writer's chair, and he became the writer-slash-artist of Daredevil. Wow. His uh, first solo issue was Daredevil number 168, cover dated January 1981. And, wouldn't you know it, sales rose so swiftly that Marvel once again began publishing Daredevil monthly, rather than bi-monthly. Uh, this started with the issue number 171, just three issues after Miller's arrival as writer. Um, now, Miller had trouble writing and drawing simultaneously, and his pencils became a bit looser, uh, to the point where Klaus uh, Jansen had to tighten it up or redraw it completely. Yeah. Uh, now, by uh, by issue number 185, Frank was sending only layouts to Jansen to, for clarification there. Um, Miller finished his Daredevil run with issue number 191, cover date February 1983. Uh, In an an interview conducted in the winter of 83, Frank said that this was the issue he was most proud of. Uh, By the end of Frank's time on Daredevil, it was Marvel's most most popular solo character title, which is pretty amazing. It is, and and people to this day, they pretty much equate Daredevil with Frank Miller and vice versa. You know, that's absolutely the definitive Daredevil person, I think, uh, you know, a writer, artist. Now, but he has has another connection to a different character that we'll talk about. Uh, Yes, he does. Miller had his first shot at Batman. He drew a short Christmas story, Wanted, Santa Claus, Dead or Alive, written by Dennis O'Neill for DC Special Series number 21 in spring of 1980. O'Neill and Miller collaborated on Amazing Spider-Man annuals number 14, October 1980, and number 15, October 1981. Uh, Frank did the covers for both of those as well. Frank Miller penciled and co-plotted the Wolverine 4-issue miniseries, September to December 1982, written by Chris Claremont. And his first creator-owned title was DC Comics 6-issue miniseries Ronin, from 1983 to 1984. In 1985, DC Comics named Miller as one of the honorees in the company's 50th anniversary publication, 50 Who Made DC Great, which is, considering he hadn't done that much work for them, pretty incredible, I I think. Absolutely. Um, You know, but yeah, I mean, I think they saw this guy who had some real real chops, and that Ronin, Mm -hmm. which was about like a samurai, it was a really big long samurai story, 
still beloved by many people uh, quoted to this day very strange book too yeah yeah it's it is it's uh even it's for futuristic time, samurai it's weird yeah it's, it's a strange book um i think that i think it's still in print do you know if I bet it is. In print, I would have to assume it's, it is, it's but got to be one of them evergreens or yeah. almost evergreens. If it's not in print, it's got to be in a Frank Miller compendium of some kind. You know what I mean? Like sure. best work of Frank Miller. So worth looking at for sure. <laughs> now, despite how great DC thought he was, Miller returned to Daredevil with the issue two number issue number two nineteen in June nineteen eighty five, penciled by John Buscema. Miller co-wrote Daredevil number two twenty six, January nineteen eighty six, with the parting writer Dennis O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And in uh, 1986, DC Comics released the four-issue prestige uh, miniseries The Dark Knight Returns, which was written and drawn by Frank Miller, uh, with inks by Klaus Janssen and color by Lynn Varley. Uh, this is one that uh, you may have heard may of, have I heard think. Of, yeah, pretty much defined <laughs> Batman forever. <laughs> yes, and, and the, it cha- almost changed the comics language for a while. Absolutely. Um, now, Frank uh, wrote and uh, David Mitchell. Mazzuchelli <laughs> produced <laughs> the seven-issue arc, uh, one of my favorite Daredevil stories of all time, probably my favorite, uh, Daredevil Born Again. This ran in Daredevil 227 to 233, uh, cover dates February through August 1986. Uh, this is sort of like uh, Matt Murdock's Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns in the sense that it redefined the character. It's pretty much the template for, yeah. uh, for Daredevil ever since. It's um, a super you know, origin a, story, like everything. Basic. Miller and uh, Bill Sienkiewicz produced the original graphic novel Daredevil Love and War in 1986. This is uh, sort of a bridge between Miller's earlier Daredevil work and the Born Again storyline. Uh, Miller and Sienkiewicz would uh, team up again for the eight-issue miniseries Electra Assassin, which came out through uh, Marvel's epic line of comics. Uh, this is August 1986 through March 1987. Uh, Miller would uh, team up with uh, David Mazzuchelli. There we go. <laughs> I know you could say, we talked about him before, I know you could say his name. I know, I've said it a few times <laughs> when we're recording, it's like Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> Now, David Mazzuchelli, again, for uh, DC Comics, and uh, editor Denny O'Neill uh, in 1987 for Batman issues 404 and 407, which was February of May through May of that year. And this was a story arc called Batman Year One. Uh, this is originally pitched as an original graphic novel, but O'Neill suggested that they do it in the uh, actual Batman comic so the uh, payments would come sooner. <laughs> which is which is a cool little consideration that, you know, it's nice that the editor had, had that uh, consideration. Had, had that in heart, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Frank, after this, did the covers for first comics adaptations of the manga Lone Wolf and Cub, which were later reused in Dark Horse's 21st Century collections. During this time, Miller, along with Marv Wolfman, Alan Moore, and Howard Chaikin, had been in dispute with DC Comics over a proposed rating system. Their displeasure was registered, and we've talked about this when we talked about Marv Wolfman. Mark, uh, their displeasure was registered in a petition signed by 26 freelancers published in Comics Buyer's Guide. It was a reaction to an open letter published by Buddy Saunders of Lone Star Comics about the lack of morality in comics, uh, as well as two comic shop- shops in Indiana being harassed for selling stuff labeled for mature readers. Frank Miller said, the evangelist's criticism was enough to cause a great deal of fear. It's hardly unusual. Since the 50s, the comics publishers have made it clear that any pressure group can come and get us anytime they want. As far as I know, the comics industry has never done a huffing thing for the First Amendment. We've got to stop looking at ourselves as worthless and impotent. We are active for participants in what's going on in the media. Frank left DC and mainstream comics on a whole at that point, settling with Dark Horse Comics as his publisher of choice. 
something tells me a lot of these creators were really, really happy when the evangelists started kicking up dust, just yeah. to, just so they could do the whole rebel thing. Maybe. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Miller completed one final project for Marvel's Epic line, which was the original graphic novel Electra, Electra Lives Again. Uh, this is in 1990. Uh, written and fully painted by Frank Miller with coloring by Lynn Varley. This is a, uh, this is like a giant oversized, uh, like a coffee table sized book. Um, very strange dimensions on it, but it's a very pretty book. Um, for Titan Comics, uh, M- Miller and artist Jeff Darrow produced Hard Boiled, which was a three-issue miniseries. At the same time, Miller and artist Dave Gibbons produced Give Me Liberty, which was a four-issue miniseries for Dark Horse. And they would have a follow-up miniseries and a few spin-offs. Um, Frank that, Miller. That I've never seen. I'd love to see that because I love Dave. Is that Gibbons the Martha art. Washington? I don't know. It sounds like it. Yeah. You know what? It is because I, I did read a little bit about it, but yeah, I, I've never seen it. But about you know Frank Miller writing, Dave Gibbons drawing. Yeah. Why give, not? Give me liberty. Give me some. You know what I mean? I, I need to check this out. <laughs> and uh, Miller would write uh, the scripts for RoboCop 2, which hit in 1990, and RoboCop 3, which came out in 1993. And we're going to talk a little bit about these movies a bit later on. Um, and Miller would write the four-issue miniseries, RoboCop vs. the Terminator for Dark Horse Comics, which is the book we'll be reading shortly. Yeah. But first, we want to talk about Walter Simonson, a.k.a. <laughs> Walt Simonson. Uh, born to September 2nd, 1946 in Knoxville, Tennessee, his father was an employee for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he got transferred to Washington, D.C. in 1949. So the whole family, including uh, his younger brother, moved to Maryland. So his dad could be closer to work, obviously. Walt was a fan of comics as a kid, particularly the Walt Disney stuff, to which his brother had a subscription. Though he was embarrassed to be seen buying comics as a teenager, uh, Walt discovered Russ Manning's work on Magnus Robot Fighter by Gold Key shortly before starting college. He submitted a picture to the comics fan page, which was called Robot Gallery, and that was printed in Magnus Robot Fighter number 10, May 1965. Uh, Simonson studied, studied geology at Amherst College, and he intended to specialize in dinosaurs in some capacity, either as a paleontologist or some kind of an anthropologist, I'm not sure. Uh, this may have been the impetus for his unique signature, which looks like a brontosaurus. You ever see the Simonson signature? Oh, yeah. This has mm-hmm. got to be it. Matter of fact, you know, comes later on, it turns out that his mother uh, did actually, I found that she told him to, you know, pick a dinosaur, you know you like those. Yep. <laughs> now, in uh, 1964 or 65, uh, Simonson discovered Marvel Comics' Thor by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and he read the title for four years. Uh, determined that making comics might be more enjoyable than archaeology and paleontology, and definitely less sweating outdoors. <laughs> uh, he graduated uh, from Amherst with a degree in geology, and uh, after that he took a year off. Uh, he enrolled as an art major at Rhode Island School of Design. He graduated in 1972. His thesis project was a 50-page black-and-white book, The Star Slammers. Hmm. Uh, it took him two years to write, pencil, letter, and ink the entire shebang himself. Uh, he published it as an Ashcan comic book in, for the 1974 World Science Fiction Convention that was held in Washington, D.C., in uh, August of 1972, he traveled to New York with his Star Slammers portfolio. He met with his friend uh, Jerry Boudreau. Sure, that, uh, that's yeah. what I would have said. Very good. Uh, and Jerry worked for DC Comics in some mystery, mysterious capacity. I couldn't find. I couldn't find him. Like, just from what his searches. title was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. might have been. The, he might have been the uh, coffee guy. I don't know. Well, that's a, that's a good job if you can get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> whatever he was, he arranged a meeting between Simonson and our editor Archie Goodwin. 
After meeting with Goodwin, he was uh, he went to D.C. office's coffee room where he found Howard Shaken, Michael Kaluta, Bernie Wrightson, and Alan Weiss hanging out. That's got to be quite a scene. Uh, Kaluta showed uh, Simonson's work to production, assistant production manager Jack Adler, who in turn showed it to DC publisher Carmine Infantino, who then asked editors Archie Goodwin, Julie Schwartz, and Joe Orlando to give Walter some work. Uh, he left the DC offices that day with a job from each of them. Well, he must be the first person to ever do that, like to walk in and walk out with three simultaneous three jobs. It's like, wow. Yep. Uh, Every editor here has given you work. Unbelievable. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he had a very unique style if you look at his 70s stuff. Absolutely. Um, at one point, Simonson lived in the same Queens apartment building as artists Alan Milgram, Howard Chaikin, and Bernie Wrightson. Simonson recalls we'd get together at 3 a.m. They'd come up, and then we'd have popcorn and sit around and talk about whatever a 26, 27, and 20-year-old guys talk about. Our art, TV, you name it. I pretty much knew at the time, these are the good old days. Simonson's per first professional published comic book work was illustrating writer Len Wein's story Cyrano's Army in DC's Weird War Tales No. 10, January 1973. He did a number of illustrations for the Harry N. Abrams Incorporated edition of The Hobbit, which was published in 1977. Simonson's breakthrough illustration job was Manhunter in 1973. This was uh, an eight-page backup feature in Detective Comics. that were These were written by Archie Goodwin. At the time, Detective was a 100-page super spectacular comic of mostly reprints. Simonson says Archie Goodwin had this idea for doing a backup story for Detective Comics, which he was editing. He was going to lead Batman, uh, do, do a lead Batman story, and then have an eight-page short story in the back. He thought we would, he would try to invent a character and do him in a way that contrasted with Batman. While Batman was dark and grim and very urban, this would be a guy in brighter colors, and the whole world would be his stage. Where Batman was more or less empty and hand-combatant, this guy would carry weaponry. And despite the call for something new, Goodwin and Simonson were very aware of the Golden Age Paul Kirk version, and admitted there were some shared qualities. I think now they've made this... They've, they're they, all part of the same all, gig. Exactly. They have, yeah. I think at the time, they, it wasn't really intended that way, but yeah, they, this is considered Manhunter 2 or 3 or whatever it is. We're going to be um, talking about this a lot pretty soon. Oh, yeah, we got to say Let's not give <laughs> no. away the surprise. We no man will that. escape it. That's right. Um, in a 2000 interview, Simonson recalled, what Manhunter did was to establish me professionally. Before Manhunter, I was one more guy doing comics. After Manhunter, people in the field knew who I was. It had won a bunch of awards the year that it ran, and after that, I really had no trouble finding work. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. And now uh, Simonson then drew other DC series such as uh, The Metal Men and Hercules Unbound, which uh, they they both have really aged well. They're they're pretty books. I say, yeah. Yes. Um, now, beginning in January 1977, Simonson was the original artist on the Rampaging Hulk, which was a uh, this is a black and white magazine that uh, that Marvel's Curtis Magazines line published. It was uh, I think this is the one that. It was all retconned as being a movie that aliens were watching. Yeah, because they couldn't. After the yeah, fact, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they couldn't uh, reconcile it with the uh, continuity. Yeah. So they uh, they wrote it off as uh, the entire black and white Hulk line or Hulk series was a uh, a film. Well, these two weird parts of Marvel, they had this black and white and this color division, and like, yeah, they obviously never knew what to do with the black and white line. It's there's so many that that's probably a story in itself. So many things they tried, they. You know, mm -hmm. they, they tried to assimilate it with, with the color line. They separated it. They assimilated it again. You know, it goes So, yeah, they they just had to wipe this away with a, uh, you know, yes, I, I a think silly, the first, silly story. Uh, 
Yeah, the first uh, spectacular Spider-Man book was one of these uh, was one of these magazines. I oh, think. really? Wow. Yeah, uh, but but you know, it didn't lead to the other one. It was just they they used the same name. Yeah. Um, now, in 1977, he uh, also drew a few issues of Thor with uh, Len Wein's uh, writing. Uh, he did Batman 300. It was June 1978. Uh, this uh, featured a story by Simonson and uh, writer David Vern Reed, who I don't know. Nope. Um, in 1979, Simonson and Goodwin uh, collaborated on an adaptation of the movie Alien, published by Heavy Metal. And it was here where his uh, relationship with letterer John Workman began. Every time I saw John Workman's name in a uh, in, in credits, I always thought it was like a pseudonym for like whoever was filling in. Yeah, just because uh, of the name Workman. Yeah, a guy, <laughs> a fellow worker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Work guy. But you yes. see from reading this too that his his lettering and you know the way he does sound effects are very specific. You know, we'll say Absolutely. that you know highly highly unique. tailored. Yeah. Now, in late 78, Simonson, Howard Chaikin, Val Mayerick, and Jim Stalin formed Upstart Associates. Uh, this was a shared uh, studio space on West 29th Street in New York City. In uh, 79, Simonson began penciling the licensed Battlestar Galactica series for Marvel Comics. Uh, he would begin co-writing the series with Roger McKenzie in issue 11. He co-wrote some issues with Bob Layton and Stephen Grant after McKenzie left the title and began doing it uh, solo with issue 19 and stayed there until number 23. Yeah, and then when we started to get into more popular, well-known Simonson, I think. Uh, Simonson yeah. writer Chris Claremont produced the Uncanny X-Men and the new Teen Titans crossover in 1982. In 1983, he returned to Star Slammers with another version of the story that Marvel published in Marvel Graphic Novel Number 6. And then Walt began writing and drawing Thor with issue number 337. Uh, that was in November 1983. This is his most celebrated work, hands down. This is what people talk about when they ever mention his name. Uh, beginning with Thor number 367 in May 1986, uh, Sal Buscema took over art duties, but Walt continued to write until issue 382, uh, August 1987. And this is the run they bring in Beta Ray Bill. And like all kinds of a lot of the crazy things in it turns Thor, into a frog. Turns into yeah. a frog at one point. Yeah, it's these have, these are all canon as far as I know. I haven't read Thor. I believe years. they are. But uh, yeah, they, they all come from this this one uh, long sustained run by Walter Simonson. In late 1986, he dropped several of his assignments, including Thor, remarking that I had a very I had had a very busy season over the past six to eight months, and I'd like to take some time off to take time maybe to take stock and refuel a bit. It was during this time he worked on the unpublished Daredevil story written by Frank Miller that came right after Born Again that just never came out. He would also leave Upstart Associates at this time. Simonson joined his wife, Louise Simonson, on the X-Factor series with issue number 10. That was November 1986. And Simonson became writer of the Fantastic Four with issue 334, December 1989. And three issues later began penciling and inking as well. For issues 347 to 349, he collaborated with Art Adams, introducing the new Fantastic Four, consisting of Wolverine, Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and the Hulk. In Fantastic, the most, the most commercial comics magazine of all time. That's they, what the that's what it said along the top of the book. That they just changed it to be like you know the the big the heroes. Yeah, that yes. may, that's funny stuff. Yeah, I've never read this one, but it's, I I do like when they shake up the FF, so I should probably check it out. It's a neat little story, yeah. Um, in Fantastic Four 345, October 1990, Simonson depicted dinosaurs with feathers, a full decade before this idea would gain any kind of mainstream acceptance, hmm. uh, even before uh, you know Jurassic Park came out. 
Oh, yeah. So uh, I think that was interesting. Uh, Simonson left the Fantastic Four with issue 354 in July 91, just in time to start working on a certain comic book that we'll discuss shortly. Yes. Let's get a, let's do a little bit of a rundown on our uh, stars here. We've got RoboCop. This movie was released July 17th, 1987. It's directed by Paul Verhoeven, written by Edward Neumeier. Neumeier? Niemeyer? I, th- I would say Neumeier, but yeah. Neumeier. And uh, Michael Mina. Uh, it starred Peter Weller, Nancy Allen, and Kirkwood Smith. Uh, distributed by Orion Pictures. Uh, in the future, Detroit police officer Alex Murphy is nearly killed by some well-equipped criminals, so he becomes an unwitting volunteer for Omni Consumer Products RoboCop Initiative. This is essentially to turn him mostly into a robot. It's quite, a, quite an initiative. And by the way, we'll just be calling that OCP for the rest of the show, because that's what they call it in the movie. Yeah, uh, you know me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Murphy wrestles with losing his humanity and learns that OCP is a company being run by a jerk. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, Murphy kills said jerk, as well as the crooks that put him in his predicament. And everyone lives happily ever after. Of course. He's trapped in a robot body and his wife left him. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually, it's actually, it's crazy in the movie, you know, he's under for a long time being turned into a robot and when he comes to he goes to visit his wife and she's like remarried like it's been years since she's sure that she thought everyone thinks he's dead but anyway uh then the terminator this was released october 26 1984 directed by james cameron written by james cameron and gail ann hurd starring arnold schwarzenegger linda hamilton and michael bain distributed also by orion pictures which probably was the key thing that allowed these two properties to come together for this uh comic book i think uh, from a future where robots have taken over, human resistance leader John Connor sends Kyle Reese back through time to protect his mother Sarah from being killed by a Terminator robot that arrived earlier. Kyle and Sarah fall in love with each other, and Kyle becomes the father to his commanding officer, John Connor. Also, Kyle dies at the end, but that's neither here nor there. Paradox. Yep. Um, <laughs> now, let's talk about the book itself, RoboCop versus the Terminator number one. Uh, the cover has RoboCop in the foreground shooting a shattering beam of light from his pistol. Uh, New Detroit is in the background colored in red. Pink smoke rises from the city. Uh, further back, a giant Terminator with a ridiculous-sized gun <laughs> surveys the scene, um, and our story begins in darkness, lit by a hemispherical explosion that goes Boom! <laughs> the sound effect, the sound of carnage peel out. We have woomph, bracka bracka, crunch, crumph, warumph, boom, boom. Yeah, it's it it's is, noisy. <laughs> and, it, and it should come as no surprise because it is the future, and the future is very noisy. Mm. Uh, and the Terminators are winning their war against humanity. Yep, in a caption, a Terminator says, Peace will come. This is the last battle. These desperate, sweating things, these humans are almost gone. Just as a fella gets stepped on by a giant robot foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, this same robot shoots the flesh off another guy's skull. Sure. Uh, then this woman, she's infiltrated the center of the regional mind, which is to say she hooked a bunch of cables to her head to learn some Terminator history. This is non-canonical, by the way, for all the Terminator fans <laughs> listening in. Don't worry about it. Uh, robots shoot the structure that houses the regional mind, attempting to shake the woman loose. And she says, Scared, aren't you, junk? You know I'm close, and you can't fight me. Not in here. This is what you were built for. Resume manual control. Brain feed. Access memory now. 
and uh there's a terminator reduced only to a torso and left arm he dragging itself behind the woman while she downloads the information connor was right it was a human mind that did it that turned you from a tool to an army of murderers a human mind merged with software then married to skynet it was a man a cop named alex murphy again non-canonical folks this yeah. is not <laughs> don't worry <laughs> Don't 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 let this uh, mess up the, your head, Cannon. Uh, now, as as she says his name, he appears on a giant screen prior to becoming RoboCop. The sneaky Terminator torso reaches up and cut the cuts the woman loose from her mind cables. She spins around and blasts him to smithereens with a nice chunky gun that goes zap. <laughs> and uh, she also reveals her uh, her guy Gardner haircut. That's right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, now it's time. haircut going on. Hey, this, yeah. this is the future. They don't have time for the salon, okay? This is no, the no, wartime. That's true. Uh, now it's time for a chase. Yeah, uh, Terminator again, and overlay says, Danger now extreme. Extensive property damage acceptable. This human knows where she's doing, where she's going, where, and when. And uh, Terminators of all shapes and sizes chase the woman to some kind of energy field that she jumps into and disappears with a parting comment of, You're too late, you hunks of junk. Too late. Clever things. This was to be the last battle, and she was the last soldier, and now she has made it a whole new war. There's an image of the a whole page of the woman naked in a fetal position. She's repeated all over the page and several times at different sizes. And I guess that's what time travel looks like. I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't know. No, I'm not sure yet. Uh, she comes to naked as a jaybird, as is the way of time travel in Terminator movies. You arrive naked, uh, right in the middle of traffic. A taxi cab stops short of hitting this woman from the future, and an angry-looking guy steps out. Sorry, could you tell me what year this is? Taxi driver says, "Yeah, this is the year I stop letting drug addicts give me a heart attack with your dumb tricks." Here I do something about it when I gotta stop my cab so fast, I throw my back out. <laughs> the driver pulls out a very large and strangely triangular gun. <laughs> it looks so weird. Here this citizen stands up for his rights. <laughs> the milling crowd nearby, seeing the commotion, they all pull their guns out. That's right, everyone's got <laughs> guns. Uh, the woman does a spin kick into the taxi driver's face, knocks him out with an elbow, and picks up his oversized piece. She points the gun at the crowd. Who's first? Come on, I'm ready. The crowd murmurs and they just kind of put their guns away and walk yeah. away. Even though we're gonna watch got, TV. They have her. They have her outgunned. I mean, you know, I don't understand, but uh, you know, why have the gun if you're not gonna? Anyway, uh, true, true. Woman, woman steals the taxi driver's car and his clothing, including a very stupid-looking floppy hat. Yes, we get a caption that says, John Connor told her that the future can be changed here in the past, and all it'll take is one quick, clean kill. The only listing for Alex Murphy is in the suburb of Livonia, a quiet place that greets her with the sight of trees and a thousand pleasant smells. She waits. A bird calls out. Then another. Soon it's a chorus. It takes her a full minute to recognize the sound for what it is. And she cries. Yeah, I, 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 that's pretty lucky there's only one, John, one Alex Murphy in the phone book there. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's a very weird name, you have to admit, right? Alex Murphy. Oh, totally. Do you know anybody yeah. named Alex? I don't ever heard of it. No, never. <laughs> uh, now, finally, a cop car pulls up in front of her. Uh, the woman assumes that it's Alex Murphy walking up to her front door. The Murphy on the, the mailbox is probably further proof. Mm -hmm. Um, she creeps up to the front of the house with her gun drawn, and she overhears a conversation. Yeah, the fellow inside says, It's just dinner, Ellen, just to get you out of the house. Everybody back at the station is worried sick about you. 
You don't even go to meetings. His wife, Ellen, says, You better go now, John. <laughs> Ellen, I know the name of a doctor. He's very nice. No, no. He did wonders for Mary when she lost her sister. Therapy won't help it. Drugs won't help it. And time won't help it either. Alex is dead. And the world doesn't make any sense anymore. Well, excuse me, Miss Only Woman Ever to Have Lost Her Husband Before. She is. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, uh, the woman from the future realizes that she's too late. Alex Murphy's already been turned into RoboCop, and that she's probably going to need a bigger gun. <laughs> Later, having used the taxi driver's money for parts, she pulls together a makeshift plasma rifle. Well, this is 1992, right? So I'm guessing one of the main components is probably a TurboGrafx-16, right, with their super processor? Think with the CD attachment. Had to be, yeah. No, had yeah. to be, for sure, yeah. <laughs> now, while putting together her futuristic ordinance, she hears a noise behind her. And wouldn't you know it, it's an ED-209 police robot. Uh, the kind that constantly malfunction in the movie, and, and here, as we'll soon learn. Yep, ED-209 says, You are in violation of street cleaning ordinance 66B. Throw down your weapon. Junk! She charges up her new gun, making it squeep! And ED-209 rotates its arms the guns. And to be clear, they're not guns on his arms. The arms <laughs> are guns. They're just, yes. like, just rotating Gatling guns themselves. ED says... I am authorized to use lethal force. Just for street cleaning, right? This is a tough town. Hey, this is Detroit, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> they don't play up in the D. It's no, cold. they don't. It's cold in the D. Um, <laughs> ED-209 fires at the woman. She rolls through his legs and shoots it in the back, obliterating it with a zap. And she uses her catchphrase, stupid junk. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's junk. Uh, now our hero heads over to the police department, hoping to find Murphy or some more information about Murphy. Uh, she pilfers a key card off of some doofus. And uh, I gotta wonder if there's any reason she can't just enter as a as a private citizen. It's a police department. I don't understand right? why she has to sneak in, but okay. Yeah. Uh, now inside the station, Dr. Marie Lazarus is dictating some notes into a tape recorder. She says, Dr. Marie Lazarus dictating... Murphy has now been on duty for 69 hours straight. He's ignored repeated commands to return for repairs, and for sleep his human side desperately needs. I fear the worst, that his unique mind can only stand the isolation for so long that he may be bordering on suicidal. Nico, is that you? The woman bashes Murray on the side of the head with a wonk. And uh, she's wearing a pretty uh, gnarly spiked forearm cover, too. You think she got that from the taxi driver? I mean, she came naked, so I don't know where she would have gotten that thing. I think so. I think so. (laughs) The woman goes, Accomplice, you're lucky I don't kill you, too. Then she picks up a Robocop tracer from Marie's desk, and now the hunt is on. Over in the cast corridor, a bad neighborhood, as the caption helpfully explains. I think we could use some more captions like that in real life. I, I find myself sometimes in sketchy neighborhoods I could have used a caption mm-hmm. to warn me. Yeah, it's like a caption over a restaurant. It's like, it is pretty good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, a kidnapped woman screams for help. And the kidnapper goes, scream all you want to. Nobody hears. Nobody cares. Nobody knows we got you but your rich husband. And he's too smart to call the cops. And even if he does, they almost never show up in the corridor. But don't worry. We get the ransom and you'll be fine. You believe me, don't you? Another kidnapper says, Hey, you hear something? The bare wall starts shedding plaster as we read or hear. (laughs) Whoomp, whoomp, pow. 
and it's RoboCop. Yeah, the, le- the kidnappers let loose a hurricane of bullets that all bounce off of RoboCop's <laughs> armor. Uh, n- none of them thought to shoot at his mouth. That's like his only vulnerable part. He's got like his his yep. his mouth and chin are exposed. Not even his full chin, but like his cheeks. But anyway, no one shoots there. <laughs> nope. uh, RoboCop breaks his support column of some kind that makes the floor drop out of the place, sending the kidnappers to the basement, I guess. I'm kind of unclear what happens in the scene, to be honest, because... He seems to take them all out, but then there's still a problem later on. Yeah. Uh, the one kidnapper that didn't fall down, he has a gun to the victim's head, and the rest of the crew resumes firing endlessly at RoboCop. So I guess from the basement. He assesses the situation computer style, kind of like scans the room and targets all, you know, all the uh, pertinent people, and he accurately targets and shoots everyone without injuring the hostage. RoboCop is triumphant, as he usually is. The hostage is very grateful and is willing to fork over money. She reaches up to touch his exposed human cheek, and RoboCop abruptly turns away and leaves. Later, at a casino 50 stories up, a disgruntled man recently fired from his job is wearing a bomb. He threatens to hit the detonator unless people give up the loot. RoboCop steps on the scene with a clank. Clank. And the criminal goes, No, you stay back. I'm one of you. I'll do it. There. Now you've really gone and done it. Five seconds and it blows. Four seconds. I'm not kidding. Robocop grabs the terrorist by the shirt and chucks him out the window. Three seconds. Robocop says, yes, I understand. The terrorist explodes massively right in midair. <laughs> we get a caption that says, Robocop, Crime Prevention Unit, D- Detroit Police Department. Uh, I mean, we just met him like a page ago. I don't even, you know, yeah. why, why are we getting the introduction now? <laughs> And, and, and if we're buying this book, I think we know who that is. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a further caption reads, Rain falls, striking his helmet, his chest. He listens to it. It seems so far away. Far away as a woman's touch. What? Okay. <laughs> far, far away as everything, except the call of duty. And without warning, Robocop is shot in the chest by the woman's plasma rifle, which now goes, Zacked. Robocop says, Who? Who are you? And she replies with, And she fires again in Robocop's fallen form. Caption reads, And the brain of Alex Murphy is blasted to atoms. Back to the future. Forests start growing out of the scorched earth, and machines are failing as the new order begins to assert itself. Wait. This is how time travel works now? I I don't... What? Don't you establish entirely... Like you have, it's like I thought you. I thought like we splintered off. We established new timelines. Isn't that what Doc Brown told us in Back to the Future? You establish a new timeline. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I mean, so basically, what this is saying is that like history as we know it still transpired the same, except that the future was over. The future, just the future part, was overwritten somehow. Like, yeah, what? I don't. It's really. It's unbelievable. It makes Crisis the Infinite Earths look like high school algebra, but the implications of this are incredible. It really does allow for a whole new type of story, as we will soon find, find out now. right now. It's as if we we never read Rip Hunter's Blackboard. You know? Really now, really. <laughs> Now, the Terminator scramble to dip a, a few in fake skin and send them back to the past to undo the undoing. I want to make this totally clear. So there's <laughs> enough time before the past events affect the future that three Terminators can suit up and zip back to save Robotop. Like, what, like what do you get? Do you get, like, a, a half-hour leeway? Like, how does that work? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's like a countdown clock you know, or something. You could, you, could say, you could say goodbye to your loved ones and, uh, you know, put your <laughs> stuff in order, and then they're going to wipe you away. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, these uh, these Terminators wind up at a professional basketball game, uh, naked as the day they were born, which was apparently today. In one sense, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when they show up, an entire crowd pulls out weapons like they usually do. Mm-hmm. Caption reads, Arrival. No shortage of weapons. No shortage of clothes. Sufficient time to prevent disruption. Uh, the three Terminators leave the stadium, a man dressed in one of the players' basketball jersey and jeans, <laughs> a blonde woman wearing a blouse and a tight skirt, and a little kid in overalls and a trucker cap. Now, why in the hell would the Terminators make little kid versions? I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm not really understanding, <laughs> you know? Like, like, are they trying to get into, like, Hot Topic or infiltrate like, the skate park? Yeah, they're trying to, you know, go, go over to the ball game or something, get in the Little League. I, really a strange mm-hmm. thing, but... Uh, the scene from earlier is replayed. The rain falls, strikes Robocop's helmet and chest, blah, 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 woman's touch, etc. Uh, the Terminators pull up in what we must assume is a stolen car with a loud screech just as the woman pulls her jury-rigged plasma gun. She's shot right in the chest and the Terminators speed off. Robocop fires a bullet at their back window, hitting the adult male Terminator in the face and exposing its robot eye. Now this must mean that he was sitting in the back seat. Uh, so... Are we to assume that the little the little kid Terminator is driving? I hope so. It could be the it could be the woman. I really hope the kid's driving though. I just I I hope so, that too. that pleases me. Uh, and then Robocop records this evidence. He turns to attend the woman dying on the ground. And the woman goes, "No, no, you monster! I'll kill you." Ma'am, you're injured. Lie still. Hands off me! It was you. The whole world died because of you. And that. Is the conclusion of issue number one of uh, the, the Robocop versus the Terminator? But there were three mm-hmm. more issues, and they get more insane as they go along. <laughs> yes, they do. So we're going to talk. We're going to talk about those and, and run those down for you in Robocop versus the Terminator number two. Uh, this woman from the future lives, and from her hospital bed, tells Robocop that he will destroy human life when he uploads to Skynet. The Terminator tri- trio descend on the hospital to finish the job, and Robocop takes them out with the help of some AD two hundred nine units. And then we uh, jump into RoboCop versus the Terminator number three. RoboCop realizes that he must destroy himself to save the future, and he does. Well, the Terminator-dominated future begins changing over to one with birds and trees. You know, it's peaceful and happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they send some Terminators back in time <laughs> to force RoboCop's connection to Skynet. Again, it, again, in that little grace period that they yep. have before time changes <laughs> over. Now, uh, while ushering in the Armageddon, uh, RoboCop uploads his consciousness to the Internet. Uh, then he waits for the horrible future. But when he takes over, a Terminator construction facility, and he creates a new RoboCop body. Yeah, so he now is fully robotic, but he's got the memories mm-hmm. of Alex Murphy. Oh, and yes. he, they even give him, like, a part f- fake flesh face, so he, lo- he looks like RoboCop. Uh, in RoboCop vs. Terminator number 4, RoboCop fights back against the Terminators, even finding the woman from the future again. Though I guess now she's the woman in the future, which in terms of the story is the present. So you can uh, follow that one. The, she suggested he create a Terminator fleet to fight against the other Terminators. After a big robot and robot conflict that includes a nuclear detonation, RoboCop <laughs> wins. But this ain't over, folks. Oh yeah, yeah. RoboCop, backloaded with missiles, heads back in time. He flies into space and destroys the Skynet satellite, creating a peaceful, idyllic future loaded with humans. And it's hilarious if you look at it. It's like people are dressed in like Roman tunics. 
and you know what i mean it's like why is why does why did that happen you know what i mean suddenly it's like oh it's so peaceful we decided we can't even wear pants anymore uh so uh from the last vestiges of the evil future the terminator send one last robot back in time to fix things it's kind of this it's the last it's, it's the leftovers i guess because it's like yeah. a little dog octopus looking robot thing but they overshoot the correct time and the terminator is killed by a careless tyrannosaurus rex which is a great end. I mean, I was like, wow. Yep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, this, the whole implication of this, like uh, the moments you have before time changes over, I was like, what the heck? Yep. <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> this is wild. It was so weird, you know, and uh, he just uses it over and over again. But, you know, again, that's not the end of Robocop vs. Terminator, is it, Chris? No, it's not. Uh, we have Robocop vs. the Terminator, the video game. Uh, Dark Horse's Robocop vs. the Terminator has the rare distinction of directly inspiring a video game. Uh, depend, uh, developed by the Sega, for the Sega Genesis, uh, which is the mega drive everywhere else in the world yeah, besides yeah, the United true. States. Uh, it came out on the uh, Sega Game Gear also in 1993 and uh, the Genesis in 94. Uh, it was quickly adapted to Nintendo's Game Boy and the Super Nintendo that very same year. Strangely, the Sega and Nintendo versions are slightly different. They are both side-scrolling platformers, but the story in the Sega version has RoboCop as the only protagonist, while the Nintendo version follows the comic more closely, beginning with the woman from the future. She gets a name here. It's going to be Flo, mm -hmm. uh, and this is the one who eventually teams up with RoboCop. Uh, the Genesis version has a killer difficulty setting, which is a notch up from hard, as I'm sure we could tell. And also, and uh, also an acceptable adjective in 1993. That's killer, bro, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, as long as the easy setting was pansy or something. Exactly. Um, or wimp. Yeah. Um, now, the Genesis version was awarded a coveted prize. Uh, they got Bloodiest Game of 1993 by EGM, by Electric Electronic Gaming Monthly. And I bet there was a lot of competition, too, I got to say. I mean, probably you know, so was. you, you got to hand it to them. Yeah. They won uh, in 93. They did, a, they did a pretty bloody game. And I saw some footage of it. Uh, I don't remember this game at all as a, as a kid playing the Genesis, but um, it's about what you'd expect. That's all I can yeah. say about it. You know, he, a, lot of, a lot of shooting people's faces open. Uh, <laughs> there was also a follow-up comic, a, a kind of a sequel, sort of, uh, Terminator Robocop. Kill Human. This came out from Dynamite Comics in 2011, July to October cover dates, written by Rob Williams and penciled by P.J. Holden, and Walt Simonson did some of the variant covers for it. This begins with Robocop traveling back through time to destroy Skynet, but he winds up arriving right before the events of the second Terminator movie, T2 Judgment Day. And we're going to talk mm -hmm. about more of the movies, more of the comics, more of the creators, and more of the craziness that is Terminator and Robocop when we come back from the break. Yes. Robocop versus Terminator! We got freeze! I suggest you use your right to remain silent before I show your robot ass some Detroit violence. I'm like an X-Wing commander because I stay on target. I take over these streets like I'm a farmer's market. I wonder where the Cyberdyne research went that they couldn't fix your funky Hans and Franz accent. They sent you back to kill a child. He's defeating the stills. They should have made a time traveling morning after pills. And I didn't think I had any feelings left inside me, but my heart 
thing up but first hey did you like the book now i enjoyed it i have a little more personal history with robocop and the terminator (laughs) and you this is you know you can't this comic wouldn't i wouldn't enjoy it to have purchased it off the rack today but uh (laughs) in context of the of the time of the 90s and these two properties together i i enjoyed it um not because of its merits necessarily but because of its supreme that that whole aspect of time changing and you have like some indeterminate sliver of, of left to, period. to to go back in time <laughs> and change it it's just I, I just couldn't wrap my brain around it though i was like i can't believe what i'm reading this is so bizarre it's so never the way i've seen time travel handled before in comics so uh i enjoyed it but it was definitely a personal enjoyment you know kind of a giggle yeah, I think I'm about on the same page there. I don't have any context for RoboCop or The Terminator. I think listeners know I'm not allowed to watch movies. Yeah. So <laughs> I uh, I have actually never seen a Terminator nor a RoboCop movie. Uh, so I my, my first exposure to them was probably this comic, which I bought off the rack in 1992. Um, I haven't read it till this week. <laughs> But I did pick it up off the rack, and it was uh, part of my very short-lived speculation phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one of—we talked about this uh, on, a, on a different show, but uh, I, I bought three books as a speculator. And uh, one only one book I bought as a speculator with no intention of reading, and that was this book. Wow. Um, Look at this. You've, <laughs> you've gone against that. However— I have. Luckily, those four comics are worth roughly $18 billion. Isn't that right? So— yeah, yeah, I don't know what the exchange rate is right now, but uh, I, I, I did trade issue three for 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 a new uh, Mercedes. So. There you go. <laughs> but uh, yes, it was my short-lived and very quickly squashed speculation phase. Yeah. Um. Now, Frank Miller, let's wrap him up. In uh, 1991, Miller started work on his first Sin City story, serialized in Dark Horse Presents number 51 through 62. This was uh, cover dates June 1991 through May 1992. It would eventually be released as a trade collection in 1993 under the name The Hard Goodbye. 
Miller worked on Sin City primarily through the 1990s, partly inspired by his living in Los Angeles at the time. Sin City would have several more yarns collected in various ways. Uh, we have A Dame to Kill For, November 93 through May 94. The Babe Wore Red and Other Stories, November 1994. And this collects three short stories uh, there and behind door number three. Uh, the Customer's Always Right and The Babe Wore Red. We have The Big Fat Kill, November 1994 through March 95. Silent Night, it was a one-shot, November 1995, 26-pager. Uh, that Yellow Bastard uh, was uh, February 96 through July 96. Daddy's Little Girl is a one-shot story, first published in A Decade of Dark Horse Number 1, is a cover dated July 1996, would eventually re- be reprinted in Tales to Offend Number 1, July 1997. Lost, Lonely, and Lethal, December 1996. This collects three stories, Fat Man and Little Boy, Blue Eyes, and Rats. Uh, Sex and Violence, March 1997, which contains two stories, Wrong Turn and Wrong Track. Just Another Saturday Night was August 1997. Uh, this was first published in a uh, Wizard Mail-In. It was Sin City number one half. Uh, came out, uh, it was uh, advertised in Wizard uh, issue 73. You had to mail away for that. Probably cost you four bucks and you had to wait about 300 weeks yeah, ago. Three, like, yeah, for, forever. <laughs> Some people are still waiting, I bet. Yeah, you'd forget you even ordered it. You changed houses three yeah. times. And it goes up. Um, <laughs> Family Values, October 1997, which was released as an original uh, original graphic novel. And Helen Back, which was uh, July 1999 through April 2000. I've sat on that property for a long, long time, folks. Big time. Uh, then Miller and John Romita Jr. would produce the five-issue Daredevil, The Man Without Fear in 1993 for Marvel Comics. Uh, this is a retelling and updating of the character's origin that includes the guy that trained him and, you know, uh, yeah, before he had his costume. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's pretty much the canonical origin as far as I know it today. Uh, Frank Miller wrote Spawn number 11, June 1993, and the Spawn Batman crossover in 1994, both for Image Comics. Miller and Jeff Darrow collaborated again in 1995 on Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot. This became an animated series on Fox Kids in 1999. Do you remember this at all? I have no memory of this. I do. I, I've uh, never watched it, but I do remember it existing. Weird. Uh, you think? Yeah. I, I wish I had kind of clued into it. I, I don't think Frank wrote any of the cartoon, but... Uh, Doubtful. He was involved in it, at least at its beginning. Um, Frank produced the five-issue series 300 for Dark Horse in 1998. It was collected in 1999. Uh, this was a retelling of the Battle of Thermopylae. I really should have given that to you, this word. Thermopylae. Thermopylae. Thank you very much. From the point of view of <laughs> Leonidas, Leonidas, Leonidas of Leonidas. Sparta. Thank you. Yeah, that's you. I, I know my uh, Roman history very well. In 2001, Frank Miller moved back to Hell's Kitchen in New York City, and he produced Batman The Dark Knight Strikes Again as a three-issue series from 2001 to 2002, but it stretched, didn't it? Yeah, yeah this was not... It was three, but it just took, took forever it to It felt out. like <laughs> six or more. Uh, yeah, this was not a good one. Uh, pretty much no. universally reviled, especially for those of us that really, really were, you know, turned on to Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2003, Miller's screenplay for Robocop 2 was adapted for comics by Stephen Krant through Avatar Press. Illustrated by Juan Ro- Jose Rip, the series is called Frank Miller's Robocop. In 2005, Mac Miller wrote All-Star Batman and Robin, drawn by Jim Lee. Mm-hmm. Also a crummy book, but so crummy it's good. You know, that, <laughs> yes. it's kind of, it does turn a corner. It's a must-read. Exactly, yeah, definitely. Uh, published 10 issues between 2000 and 2008. 
technically still an ongoing. The co- <laughs> they, they always act like, oh, we, we, we have the pages. We're going to release them any minute. Um, <laughs> issue number 10 is well known for containing visible profanity that caused the comic to be recalled. Mm-hmm. Now, a director, Robert Rodriguez, made a short film based on the story from Miller's Sin City entitled The Customer's Always Right. Based on this, he and Miller entered a partnership to ad- to adapt Sin City to a feature film. Uh, Miller's comics were used as storyboards, and Rodriguez wanted to give Frank uh, co-directing credit. The Directors Guild of America would not allow it, citing that only legitimate teams credit. Okay. <laughs> Rodriguez chose to resign from the DGA, stating, It was easier for me to quietly resign before shooting, because otherwise I'd be forced to make compromises I was unwilling to make or set a precedent that might hurt the guild later on. That's pretty principled stance. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sin City was released April 1st, 2005. Pretty popular film. Worldwide total from theater receipts was $158.7 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, based on Miller's second Sin City series, was co-directed by Miller and Robert Rodriguez and was released to theaters August 22, 2014. Not quite as well-received as the first, probably because they sat on it for so long. Uh-huh. Uh, the worldwide net was only 30—I oh, say only, but it was $39.4 million. Yeah, I think it did still turn a profit, but not, I'm sure. not enough to get—we're not getting a third one, I'll tell you that. No, no. I mean, if they if they would have released that a year or two after the first one, I think it would have been uh, me too. Ex- received quite it's, a bit better. It's very uh, visually striking. It really does follow the look of his comic in like the oh, yeah. stark blacks, and I think it's mostly red is the other color. But it's almost like a two color film throughout. It's uh, interesting, and for its time, it was really like arresting. And then came out, you know, nine years later, it was no longer as arresting as it was when it first came. Yeah. Yeah, the moment had passed. Uh, Frank Miller directed the Lionsgate film adaptation of The Spirit in 2008, which uh, didn't do too well. It grossed uh, $38,395,030 worldwide. I know I'd love to have a failure someday where I merely grossed $38 million. That would be nice. I'd, I'd love to fail on that level. I, I don't know if he can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, oh, what a failure. Oh, well, I'm retired off my failure now for life. Uh, anyway, in September 2011, Frank Miller released an OGN titled Holy Terror. This was initially going to be a Batman OGN titled Holy War Batman, wherein the Cape Crusader fights Al-Qaeda. As he neared the end of this process, Frank decided the character was more Dirty Harry than Batman. And he recast a new hero named the Fixer and retitled the work Holy Terror. You know, a lot of the pe- a lot of people think that he pitched this story to DC and they turned him down. And they said no. Yeah. But that's not true. They they actually were okay with it. Yep. It was Frank that yanked it uh, because he decided that this was not really a bad. And to be honest, so if you ever Batman. looked at it, he was right. It's not really a oh, absolutely. proper Batman story. No. Um, Miller was unabashed about this uh, Holy Terror being a propaganda piece and told NPR, For the first time in my life, I know how it feels to face an existential menace. They want us to die. All of a sudden, I realize what my parents were talking about all those years. Patriotism, I now believe, isn't some sentimental old conceit. It's self-preservation. I believe patriotism is central to a nation's survival. Ben Franklin said it. If we don't all hang together, we all hang separately. In November 2011, Frank spoke out against the Occupy Wall Street protest on his blog, calling the participants nothing but a pack of louts, thieves and rapists, fed by Woodstock-era nostalgia and putrid false righteousness. Wake up, pond scum. America is at war against a ruthless enemy. 
Maybe between bouts of self-pity and all the other tasty tidbits of narcissism you've been served up in your sheltered, comfy little worlds, you've heard terms like Al-Qaeda and Islamicism. Hmm, that was the moment that I think a lot of people on the internet realized they never liked Frank Miller's work. Suddenly, ever, ever. suddenly all of Frank Miller's oh, work was horrible, yeah. as I recall. It, it suddenly, <laughs> I think I think maybe uh, the Terminators went back in time and changed. That's what happened. <laughs> the, oh, God. Yeah, so suddenly, suddenly the comic you know, that you liked holding in your hand turned bad. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in 2015, DC began publishing The Dark Knight 3, The Master Race. Miller co-wrote this with Brian Azzarello and Andy Kubert and Klaus Janssen are the artists. And, they, and let me tell you, uh, they do a pretty good Frank Miller impression art-wise, though, I gotta say. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think this wraps up with the ninth issue not next month. I don't know. I don't even, I don't know if, I don't know if ninth <laughs> is, is the last issue, nor do I know if it's coming out next month. Um, I mean, they started 2015. Here we are in 2017. It's not done yet, folks. It's been trickling out over a long time. Yep. Uh, in, with less less pomp and circumstance each issue. Each issue, although it's it's still, I mean, they they get their variants and it still pushes oh yeah, six figures every time it gets yep. out there. So DC's not going to stop the music anytime soon. I'll tell oh. you. In 2005, he divorced Lynn Varley, who was also a longtime collaborator that colored many of Frank Miller's seminal works. Uh, and really, we didn't give her credit throughout there, but it's it's a, a lot of them. You know what I mean? Almost yeah. all the color stuff. It seems like she had a hand in. Uh, he received an Inkpot Award in 1981. He won the Kirby Award for Best Single Issue two years in a row in 1986 for Daredevil number 227 and 1987 for Batman The Dark Knight Returns number one. Also won the Kirby Award for Best Art Team in 1987 for Dark Knight Returns. And he won the Harvey Award for Best Continuing or Limited Series in 1996 for Sin City and then in 1999 for 300. On July 10th, 2015, at the San Diego Comic-Con, Miller was inducted into the Eisner Awards Hall of Fame. Seems almost like way late for that, doesn't it? It does, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I guess it, things came to a head. You had to realize I this guess. guy is serious yeah. business, you know. Um, who knows? Maybe there was even like a little bit of back, or I definitely know there was backlash against his comments in 2011. Sure. And maybe they had to let that cool down before they inducted him. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it, it definitely super accomplished guy in comics totally. and uh it's, it, was, it was a pleasure to read about him sure sure um now uh, wrapping up uh, walter simonson here uh now in order to render the terminators robocop and the ed-209 robots correctly uh, frank miller odd adams and john byrne lent walt some uh model kits for reference yeah, that was just a little interesting tidbit. And the, that's fact neat. That, yeah. and the fact that all these guys had these model kits, <laughs> of course, <laughs> I mean, you should have known. But well, if you, if you look at like uh, the John Byrne when he takes pictures of his uh, of his studio and his house, I mean, yeah. he's got so much cool stuff. It's like a toy box in there. It's oh, crazy. totally, it's excellent. <laughs> Now, uh, Walter co-plotted and wrote the Iron Man 2021 shot. This was June 1994, drawn by Bob Wiasek, or Wiasek. Um, in 1994, Simonson continued the adventures of Star Slammers in a limited series as one of the founders of Malibu Comics' short-lived Bravura, Bravura label. Yeah. Um, yeah, because Malibu had, like, Bravura. They had uh, the Ultraverse. They had a whole bunch of uh, yeah. little mini imprints there. Uh, Simonson wrote the uh, Heroes Reborn version of the Avengers, 1996 through 1997. We won't hold that against him. <laughs> uh, from 2000 to 2002, he wrote and illustrated Orion for DC Comics. After Orion, he wrote six issues of Wonder Woman, Volume 2, which were drawn by uh, Jerry Ordway. 
Uh, from 2003 to 2006, he drew the four-issue prestige miniseries Elric, The Making of a Sorcerer, written by Elric's creator, Michael Moorcock. This would be a collected in trade in 2007 by DC. And he continued to work for DC in 2006, writing Hawk Girl with pencilers Howard Chaikin, Joe Bennett, and Renato Arlem. In 2008, he co-wrote with his wife Louise a comic based on the online RPG World of Warcraft for Wildstorm. The series ran 25 issues at the height of World of Warcraft fame, so yeah. I'm sure it did very well. Uh, Walt wrote the Demon and Catwoman serial in Wednesday Comics in 2009. And in 2011, Simonson had a cameo role in the live-action Thor film, appearing as one of the guests at a large Asgardian banquet, which is a cool nod, although I'd never, I didn't notice it when I saw the movie. Hmm. Uh, Simonson drew six issues of the Avengers Volume 4 in 2012, provided art for three issues of the Indestructible Hulk, which guest starred Thor. I didn't know any. I didn't know he did work this recently yeah. for Marvel, but that's cool. Uh, Simonson collaborated with his wife for a short story in Rocketeer Adventures Volume 2, Number 4, and also drew covers for several Rocketeer comics during this period. In 2012, DC Comics published The Judas Coin, a graphic novel written and drawn by Simonson. Currently, Walt has a creator-owned series, Ragnarok, uh, or Ragnarok, published by IDW Publishing, featuring a Thor that is not the Marvel Thor. I guess he's the actual Norse god. Hmm. And Simonson met his future wife, Louise Jones, in 1973. The couple started dating in August 74 and were married in 1980. There you go. Uh, Simonson serves on the disbursement committee of the comic book industry charity, The Hero Initiative. Uh, he won the Shazam Award for Outstanding New Talent in 1973. Won the Shazam Award Best Individual Story, Dramatic, in 1973 for the Himalayan Incident that appeared in Detective Comics number 437 with Archie Goodwin's script. Um, in the same award, he, he won the same award in 1974 for Cathedral Perilous in Detective Comics 441, again with Archie Goodwin. Uh, Simonson and Goodwin also won a Shazam Award for Best Individual Story, Dramatic, in 1974 for... Guter I would say. Guter Dämmerung <laughs> in Detective Comics number 443. Um, all, all three of these stories are uh, Manhunter backups that we'd mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, Simonson would receive an Inkpot Award in 1985. At the uh, 2010 Harvey Awards, he received the Hero Initiative Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was presented to him uh, by his wife, Louise. That's very nice. Uh, it is. Yeah, I, I tell you, this this tells me two things. Number one, I do want to look at some of these Manhunter backups, see what they're all totally. about, these award-winning. And uh, I think we we have a future doing a bio on Archie Goodwin coming up because... Uh, I know he's a much beloved writer, editor, and th just the accomplishments we're, we're getting, like you know, uh, you know, side accomplishments. You know, he's just kind of being mentioned, but he's everywhere, uh, all over oh, yeah. his comics. So, uh, yeah, that just just makes me think that these are titans of the industry we're talking about, folks. Um, now we're gonna wrap up the RoboCop franchise. Let me tell you, this has been a lucrative and crazy franchise for whoever, <laughs> whoever the heck owns it now. Uh, the original movie was produced for $13 million and grossed $53,424,681 just in North America. This was before a time wow. when there was a worldwide box office thing. So, whoa, that's uh, very <laughs> profitable. 
Paul Verhoeven would go on to direct several successful films, including the sci-fi favorites Total Recall in 1990 and Starship Troopers in 1997. Uh, he also directed Showgirls in 1995, for which he won the Razzle Award, Award for Worst Director. And you can't win every, you know, every. No. Although in a way he did win, he won the Razzle, the Razzle Award. The Razzie. Yeah, Razzie. That's right. So uh, yeah, uh, RoboCop had two sequels, both written by Frank Miller, as mentioned, and here they are. Yes, RoboCop 2, 1990. OCP has released a new killer drug called Nuke into Detroit, hoping it'll cause the city to default so OCP can buy it and build over it. They failed to do so because RoboCop exposes them. Basically, (laughs) RoboCop wins. Yes. Uh, Three years later, RoboCop 3, 1993. OCP, they're always at it. They create a militarized force. Uh, RoboCop inspires the people to rise against them and take Detroit back. Yeah, you can't beat RoboCop, buddy. That's a problem. Never. Uh, Orion Pictures granted television rights to Canada's Sky Vision Entertainment, and one season aired in 1994. Uh, I don't have the title here for some stupid reason. Hmm. This was to have taken place between RoboCop and RoboCop 2. I think the show was probably called RoboCop. I the, think you might be right. <laughs> the rights somehow went to Canada's Fireworks Entertainment, who wanted to make use of them before they expired. And so in 2001, they came out with a four-episode miniseries titled RoboCop Prime Directives. Uh, Marvel Comics also had a RoboCop series that ran for 23 issues from 1990 to 1992. It was written by Alan Grant and drawn by Lee Furman. Later issues were drawn by were written by Ro- Simon Furman, I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, or brother or something. Maybe, yeah. Uh, now, this would lead to uh, RoboCop, the animated series. It was produced by Marvel, and 12 episodes aired first in uh, 1988. Uh, Dark Horse had a comic series that followed RoboCop vs. Terminator, simply titled RoboCop. It ran from uh, 1992 to 1994 and lasted 13 issues. In uh, 1998, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Metro <laughs> produced 40 episodes of another cartoon. Uh, this is RoboCop Alpha Commando. Avatar Press got in on the comics action with their RoboCop series, which ran 11 issues over three years, uh, 2003 to 2006. This was a nine-issue miniseries and a couple of one-shots. RoboCop's comic story is not done yet. Dynamite Entertainment had a nice run of RoboCop, 14 issues from uh, 2009 to 2013, and that is a six-issue miniseries and two four-part miniseries. Uh, there was also a reboot in 2014, but it didn't go all that well. No. Uh, we're thinking that Boom, <laughs> that is currently doing a RoboCop series now, they're also doing a reprint of uh, Avatar's version of the property. Yeah, it was hard to find out about that. It seems like they have done some issues. It does. I can't tell if they're finished with it. If it's, it was, yeah. It's, it's, like a it's out there. Yeah, if you can let us know, that'd be nice, <laughs> nice to find out. Uh, but I'll tell you, if you think RoboCop had a lot of uh, had a franchise, wait to oh, yeah, hear yeah. about the Terminator, folks. This movie stayed at the top, the original one, uh, stayed at the top for two weeks in 1984. It made $78.3 million worldwide on a budget of just $6 million. Wow. And James Cameron, he went on to make a few movies you might have heard of, like Titanic and Avatar, the two biggest grossing movies in history. So I never saw them. No, I, I'm sure you never you must have heard of them, though, right? <laughs> you know about them. Are they, they are in the ether, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Terminator had four direct sequels. Uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 1991. This was co-written and produced and directed by James Cameron. John Connor's now a teenager, his mom is in a mental institution. The Terminators send back a new liquid robot that can assume the form of anyone. This is the T-1000. He comes back to kill John. The human resistance sends back an old-school Schwarzenegger Terminator 
to assist John, and hilarity ensues. Actually, wholesale death and carnage ensues, but <laughs> Cyberdyne Systems, which ultimately creates site Skynet, is destroyed, and the Connors move to Mexico or something at the end. It was really kind of unclear. They just sort of, like, you would think they'd be like, all right, we're good now. We can, you know, reassimilate back into society, but they're too, sure. like, they're too rebellious and, like, you know, hard scrabble to do that. Uh, this movie was made for $102 million and grossed Five hundred and nineteen point eight million dollars at the box office alone. This is not. This is not home video sales. Not worldwide. Just. I mean. Uh, you know. Not other. At you know. Iterations. Yeah. Just that. Uh, and this is also perhaps the only feature film I ever saw three times in the theater. You contributed to the gross. I, I guess I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I gotta figure that the uh, the design for you know like the face coming off the Terminator here is uh, was. Probably what they were thinking of when they did that cyborg Superman for the uh, reign of the Superman. I think so. I mean, the, the, the cyborg Superman, yeah, looks so similar to the Terminator. I it's mean, really, be, yeah. really, it's like it's what would a skeleton look like dipped in metal. So it's not like yeah. that uh, unique. But yeah, I, I think that cyborg Superman was Didn't inspired hurt. here. Sure. <laughs> now, uh, Terminator Three was next. Rise of the Machines, uh, two thousand three. We kiss uh, James Cameron goodbye. Uh, <laughs> The world is taken over by Sky. The world takeover by Skynet has been postponed, but not stopped. And future Terminators send back an even sleeker Lady Terminator, made from liquid metal TX, to uh, kill John Connor and all of his future lieutenants. The Resistance sends back another Arnold robot to fight the good fight. Uh, in the end, Arnold locks John and his future wife in a bomb shelter while Skynet causes nuclear annihilation. This one caused, we're going to start seeing the law of diminishing returns mm, here. A little bit, yeah. Uh, this one cost uh, $187.3 million, uh, with, uh, which was $167.3 million, excluding production overhead, and would earn $433.4 million in the box office. Yeah, so it, it, it did earn... Out, but it made it, its money back. It's yeah, not, it's not doing not doing so great. Also, by this point too, like Arnold Schwarzenegger is not a young body. You know, like, yeah. now, now we're looking like an old Terminator. It doesn't really make any sense. Uh, but it got worse, folks. Terminator Salvation came out in two thousand nine. <laughs> Christian Bale's in this one, hot off his Batman movies. Uh, this is a plotting movie about how John Connor, who is played by Christian Bale, became leader of the Resistance, with lots of nods to previous movies, including John meeting his dad Kyle Reese for the first time and Arnold Schwarzenegger's face being digitally imprinted on the first line of Terminators. This one cost $200 million, but it only grossed $371.4 million. Wow. Terminator Genesis. Genesis. <laughs> this is 2015, and it's spelled funny. Yeah. Uh, now, this one served as a reboot, because people don't make new movies anymore. We know that. <laughs> uh, and it still even had a... I don't know how old Arnold Schwarzenegger I mean, is at this point. But to roll him out in a wheelchair. So, geez, he's still the Terminator. <laughs> he's, he's, well, his iron lung will be cybernetic. I mean, uh, the, what's um, weird is the whole cast has changed. But the, but that guy that really should be the one young-looking guy, you know what I mean? But whatever. But we did see in the comic that they do make Terminators out of little kids, so why not older men? Yeah. Um, so. Now, this is essentially the first plot is the original movie, except Kyle Reese gets sent to an alternate timeline where Skynet was never launched. But someone, uh, somewhere, Sarah Connor has a Terminator protecting her since birth, right? Yeah, something. Uh, yeah, somehow. <laughs> somehow yeah. she has a, she has a Terminator. That's what. It, that's, that's yeah. I did, but uh, I didn't see this one. It really sounds overboard, complicated. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Really. Uh, now this one cost 155 million and made 440.6 million worldwide. 
which sounds decent, although it's you know sure. for some for some reason doubling your money in movies is not enough. If you ever hear if you ever saw that, like they if, it, unless yeah. you unless you quintuple your money these days, they consider it a complete failure. But that That's was wild. worldwide. I remember the 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 box office uh, receipts in America were just like 150 million or something really sad. So uh, we probably will not see any more movie sequels anytime soon. Although I'm sure we will see a reboot. Eventually, Eventually. that's what they do. Uh, Terminator also got ported to television. Uh, Fox put out the television series Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles in 2008, showing Sarah and John after the events of T2 Judgment Day, kind of trying to make it in the uh, Mexico or New Mexico or wherever they were. This show was created by Josh Friedman, who also did the 2005 film adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. He'll be co-writing the next Avatar movie with James Cameron, which is... Swell for him, that's nice uh, It ran for one and a half seasons 31 episodes in total It was actually a mid-season replacement The first year it came out And the show was pretty well received And got high ratings But I, I think Terminator Genesis just <laughs> Sort of took the air out of the enthusiasm For the whole franchise for a minute It was like everyone just kind of like Backed off slowly from Terminator stuff for a minute <laughs> It seems weird to, to launch a show When you have a movie in the works You'd figure like one would serve the other Instead of yeah. Instead of the way they rolled almost them out like cross, They were almost like cross purposes The way they were Yeah, but I don't know totally. um, Well those are the movies We also have video games mm. Oh boy do we have video games uh, Now besides adaptations of all five Terminator movies There are a lot more games outside of the canon uh, We have uh, Terminator 2029 a uh, DOS action-adventure game developed and published by Bethesda Software all the way back in 1992. It uses a first-person perspective, but only four directions of movement at 90-degree angles. So it's like you're, 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 you're on tank controls, yeah, basically. basically. It's classic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a shooting gallery that uh, gets boring, just like a lot of those do. Uh, we have Robocop vs. Terminator, but we already talked about that. We've got The Terminator Rampage. It's another first-person shooter uh, released by for the PC by Bethesda in 1993. This is more uh, of the, you know, Wolfenstein and Doom right. world here. It's, uh, it's you know, just straight-up first-person action. It takes place before the first movie. Yeah, you just crawl around shooting Terminators in the face. I mean, it's, it's as if it were a mod of a Wolfenstein game that just replaced yeah. the uh, Nazis with, with robots. With but Terminators, yep. It's, it's as fun as that, though, so if you like that, there's no reason you wouldn't like this. Sure. After that came Terminator Future Shock. This is yet another first-person shooter released by Bethesda Softworks in 1995. This one takes place in the future, 2015. Uh, wow. Now it's our past. Away. But yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> after the world has been overrun by robots, you join the resistance, meet John Connor, and shoot up the place. This one actually used Quake-style controls of with like using the keyboard and mouse and using the mouse mm -hmm. to aim and stuff before Quake was released. Uh, oh wow! It's not a Quake platform. I don't want you to, anyone to think it's as good as Quake, but it's just it's interesting they kind of like innovated that control system. Hmm. Uh, after that came Skynet. This was another first-person shooter developed by Bethesda in 1996. It was supposed to be an expansion pack, uh, what we call a DLC today for the Terminator Future Shock game. But it was released as a standalone for some reason. Hmm. We have the Terminator Dawn of Fate. It was released by Paradigm Entertainment for the PlayStation 2 and Xbox in 2003. It's a more uh, Resident Evil-style game taking place in the future, but just before and during the events of the first movie. Uh, two songs were recorded for the game by industrial metal band Fear Factory, which be, would be their last work before breaking up. And that's the only memorable thing about this video game, folks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then we have uh, my favorite here, 
the Terminator. I'm back. Uh, <laughs> it's a shoot 'em up mobile game developed and published by Infusio in 2005. Uh, Terminator Revenge is a mobile phone the, the, the mobile phone platform game developed and published by Infusio a year later in 2006. Then we have FPS Terminator. Uh, guess guess what? It's a first person shooter. Uh, developed by the original studios, made in 2011, and this is in the future of 2029. Yeshu Robots. Dead. You know, I I love that title too because FPS Terminator. It's like, well, what what the hell were the other yeah, games? FPS, you know what I mean? huh? like every, every almost every Terminator <laughs> game is an FPS. You know, it's so ridiculous. And oh, those Terminator comics. Of course, this is a, still a comics podcast. I know some people thought we might have jumped over to uh, movies and <laughs> yes. video games, but we are still interested in the comics, and there are a lot of Terminator comics. We're going to try to do our best to at least give you the years and stories, uh, wrap-ups as much as best we can. And again, this doesn't count movie adaptations, of which every movie you know, was adapted yeah. sometimes more than once by different companies. So mm-hmm. I'm not even counting those. We're just going into the stuff outside of the movie canon. So first we got Now Comics. Uh, they were a comic book publisher founded in late 1985 by Tony C. Caputo. Dealt mainly with licensed properties. They did Ghostbusters and a couple other things. Married with Children. Married with Children was a comic, yeah. They, they have a lot of bunch of strange ones. And really, that, it can only happen at this time. Uh, but anyway, uh, their first series was The Terminator, 1988 to 1990. They said 17 issues and takes place in 2031, tracking John Connor's resistance. Uh, the Terminator, All My Futures Past in 1990. This had three issues, more resistance fighting in 2031. In Terminator, The Burning Earth, 1990, it had five issues written by Ron Fortier and drawn by Alex Ross. This was his first published work. Wow. Uh, I thought it was amazing. I got to take a look at it. it. takes place after the events of the first series, Skynet's final ploy to destroy humanity once and for all. And then uh, for also, the last one from now was The Terminator, Tempest, that was uh, came out in 1990. As one issue, John Connor recollecting more horror. Hmm. The uh, property would jump to Dark Horse Comics. We've got The Terminator One-Shot, 1992. Uh, This would be the final Now Comics issue republished by Dark Horse. So a decent bridge. Um, We have The Terminator Secondary Objectives, uh, 1991 to 1992. It's four issues about Sarah Connor living in New Mexico in 1984. A new Terminator has to fulfill its secondary objective. Kill a pregnant Sarah Connor. <laughs> Why not? Uh, the Terminator, The Enemy Within, 1991 through 1992. It's another four issues. Takes place in the present, with quotes, and the future. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's a bit too complicated for a one-sentence run. I, I, I mean, it's so... So, you know, the thing we, we just read in Frank Miller and the Simonson thing about the future changing as, you know, in real time. Yeah. This one has, has a whole thing where there are different timelines and that when you go back in time, you can end up in those other timelines and then affect those futures, which somehow also oh, impact the one you left. The other ones. Yeah, oh, boy. It's it's really, I mean, I, I, I sat for a while trying to like, how do I, no, but it can't be summarized. If you're interested, go read it, folks. <laughs> I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> we got uh, the three-issue Terminator Hunter and Killers. This is John Connor. And this is 1992. John Connor and his army battle Skynet in the future. Uh, the Terminator Endgame, 1992. Another three issues, uh, which concludes the events from the Terminator, the Enemy Within, with a battle between the machine, a new T-800, and the last surviving resistance fighter, Mary Randall. 
at the hospital where Sarah Connor is scheduled to give birth on October 4th, 1984. Whew. Whoa. And RoboCop vs. Terminator 1992. I think we learned a little bit about I think about we this. know about that one already, yeah. <laughs> then the property went over to Malibu Comics, which was riding high right at this time. Uh, Terminator 2, Cybernetic Dawn, came out from 95 to 96. This was four issues. Sarah and John fight three new Terminators. In a collected edition, this is also known as Present War. Uh, then there was Terminator 2, Nuclear Twilight, 95 to 96. This was, again, four issues, although really five, detailing the final events before John Connor sends Kyle Reese back to save his mom in the first movie. In the collected edition, it's known as Future War, and there is also a zero issue of Nuclear Twilight that kind of acts as epilogues for both of these two series. Then, for some reason, it went back to Dark Horse Comics again, and they came out with Terminator Death Valley in 1998. Two Terminators sent to kill John Connor wind up in the wrong place and run afoul of a biker gang. Sure. Sure. That's fine. Uh, Then there was the Terminator The Dark Years, 1999. This was four issues. More dividing between future and past and the introduction of a new Terminator, the T-Infinity. Ooh. Mm, Uh, We we have a... (laughs) We've got some crossovers here. We have Superman vs. the Terminator, Death to the Future. This ran from 1999 to 2000. It was four issues written by Alan Grant with art by Steve Pugh or Poe. How did we say that? I say Pugh, but I could be wrong. Pugh. We'll do Pugh or Pug. I don't know. <laughs> um, now, the, the Terminators come to Metropolis. Then Superman takes it to the future and tackles the Terminators. Uh, it'll also feature Steel as well as Lex Luthor and the Cyborg, who, believe it or not, has allied with the Terminators. Yeah. Hey, go figure. You know, birds of a feather. Um, <laughs> we have Alien vs. Predator vs. Terminator 2000. Kind of explains itself. I think I pretty much, yeah. You can pretty much say yeah. Alien and the Terminator, the Predator, they fight. I don't uh, know why they didn't let RoboCop into that one. They should have. I, while, you, while we're filling it up, put, put Jason Friday 13th in there. Let's, get it, let's, let's fill this thing up, everybody. Uh, then this property went over to Dynamite Entertainment. Uh, they came out in 2007 with Terminator 2 Infinity. This takes place right after the events of Terminator 3. Skynet sends Terminators back to correct some anomaly that's giving them trouble in the future. Which essentially is the plot of every Terminator every story, time. but this was some other anomaly that had, they had not addressed earlier. Uh, Terminator 2 came out in 2008, but this not the movie. Instead, this was a Terminator meets Jimmy Palmiotti and Mick Gray's character, Painkiller Jane. Okay. What? Uh, then there was... Terminator Revolution uh, in 2009. More of the same stuff, folks. Uh, the Terminators come back to correct a uh, something that gives them a headache later on. And then there was Terminator Robocop Kill Human in 2011, which we actually did talk about earlier. Yes. Now we go back to Dark Horse Comics. Wow. <laughs> Again. <laughs> we have the Terminator 2029 came out in 2010. Uh, three issues, a future version of Kyle Reese survived the events of the first movie and is captured by the Terminators. He convinces a buddy named Ben to go back and save them, which leads to the Terminator 1984, also 2010. It continues that seri- the previous series, and now Ken, and, uh, Kyle and his pal Ben meet up in 1984 to enjoy new wave music and save Sarah Connor. <laughs> uh, Terminator Salvation, the final battle, ran from 2013 to 2014. It was 12 issues, and it would continue uh, from where Terminator Salvation left off. Terminator, Enemy of My Enemy, 2014. In 1985, a Terminator is sent back to kill a different lady, and this time only a CIA operative can help her. And uh, 
Ooh. I'm pretty sure that's not the end. I'm pretty sure I we will it. see Terminator comics forever and ever and ever. Uh, I'm a big fan of the property, but even I got to say, this gets a little ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> uh, although I wonder maybe maybe the reason it keeps jumping around to different publishers is because they, they keep sending Terminators back in time and it keeps affecting their uh, publishing programs. I'm not sure. That's what's know. happening. I'm sure yeah. that's what it is. It's probably two different bands of Terminators. One of them really loves Dark Horse. The other one hates Dark Horse. And they're like, <laughs> no, we got to change this. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you are a big fan of the Terminator property or the Robocop property, you have anything to say about anything we've talked about, or just want to holler at us and pick a comic for a future episode, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at Cosmic T Mill History, on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Every week, you got to make sure to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a new DC comic every day of the week. And lately, you've been showing off your uh, uh, dollar bin polls, your half-price books. Oh, yeah. Finds, which which end up being the comics often that you're going to be reviewing. So yeah, it depends on if I want to dig in the bins or not. I, I Well, you're doing an interesting one now. You're doing that Genesis uh, series. so that's Just uh, wrapped up Genesis, and that uh, lets me look at Millennium in a whole new light. It's uh, it's uh, interesting stuff, I'm telling you. It's, it's one of these sites that you really do want to check it out on a regular basis because it's often themed and... A lot of times does act as a corollary to the podcast. So it does. Yep. Chris is on infiniteearths.com. I highly recommend you go check that out and follow uh, him on Twitter as needed. And I want to, uh, yeah, give a thanks to Ryan from Columbus Comics Corner Podcast for the suggestion for this book. Certainly. But I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? No, uh, just uh, you know, another thanks to Ryan, and uh, this is not a this is not a book I would have read otherwise. Yeah. So uh, I, I love it when we get suggestions for books that either are not on my radar or something that I would purposely not read, and then it turns out to be a, a fun time. I, I love the fact that you own the book too. And that, I mean, they otherwise, got that, it on the day of release. Yeah, that would have gone unread forever. You know what I mean? <laughs> With that, you know what I mean? I'm not. I'm just saying. You know, when are you gonna yep. get around to it? But here we are. True. Yeah. True. Drug it out into the light of day and. Uh, saved humanity or something i'm not sure a few times <laughs> exactly <laughs> but if that's all we got for him i want everyone to please keep it on the treadmill cosmically Hasta la vista. You see?